Welcome to the Power of Podcast series. In our collection, we dive into critical, thought-provoking and contemporary content to stimulate debate and dialogue, all with the aim of driving gender equality in global health. I'm Joanna Riha, a research fellow within the Gender and Health Hub at the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health, based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Following our last mini-series on the power of the collective, we're back with a new series focusing on the power of feminist leadership. This time, we're drawing on themes from a fantastic think piece authored by Srilata Batliwala, Senior Advisor on Knowledge Building at CREA, Creating Resources for Empowerment in Action. Srilata is also a Senior Associate at Gender at Work and an Honorary Professor of Practice at Southwest University in London. Well, some of you might be asking, you know, why focus on feminist leadership in our discussions around advancing gender equality for health? And actually, I'm going to hand over to Srilata to answer that. I think I'd like to start with the quote that I, in fact, start the paper with, which is kind of a cautionary tale to all of us. It's the famous quote from Lao Tse, the ancient Chinese philosopher. He said that if you don't change direction, you'll end up where you are heading. And I think it's such a simple but deep, deeply wise statement that if we keep going the way we've been and the kinds of leadership we've been practicing, well, we're going to get exactly what we deserve, which is a continuous reproduction inside our spaces of the very power structures that we claim we want to change because we are not going to that change at a deep enough level. We are telling people that a socially just world is possible. But where are we showing it to them? Where are we showing them what it feels like, what it looks like, what it's like to live in that world? So that's what we have to try and demonstrate Inside these spaces, these small spaces, our organizations, our movements, our collectives, which are within our control. If we can't give people even a glimpse within these spaces of what this socially just, transformed world is like, why should they believe it's possible for you to create it anywhere else? Thank you. Hopefully, Srilata has convinced you about why we need to spend this mini-series focusing on feminist leadership. Today's episode is a bit different. We're actually going to hear snippets from a webinar UNU-IIGH co-hosted with CREA, marking the launch of Srilata's think piece. As with our previous mini-series, we will kick off hearing about the key concepts from the think piece. So, Srilata, please tell us more. I hope that this is going to give you a taste and sort of tantalize you to actually download and read the entire paper. So let's begin. I'm going to cover what is transformative feminist leadership? How do we define it? Why does it matter? How is it different from other forms of leadership? What are the four Ps of the feminist leadership diamond? What gets in the way of practicing feminist leadership and the four quadrants in which we have to create change 
in order to achieve this vision of transformative leadership. So without further ado, let's begin with a definition. How do we define feminist leadership? Now, this is a definition that's in progress, and it keeps evolving and keeps deepening and changing as time goes on. So right now, I'm defining it as a process of transforming ourselves. So beginning with the self, our organizations, and the larger world to mirror and advance a feminist vision of social transformation and justice. It's not about authority and control. It's not about who's the boss or even being the shiro or the savior, but it's about dismantling discriminatory structures of power, whether they're visible, hidden, or invisible within ourselves, our organizations, and our movements, and eventually the larger world. So the purpose of feminist leadership is to mobilize our individual and collective power to build a world of peace, equality, respect for nature and the planet, where the rights and well-being of all people are ensured, regardless of all these differences and stigmas and exclusions that we've created. Why does this matter and how is it different? Now, to understand this better, we need to unpack what makes the feminist approach different, what makes that unique. So the first thing that makes the feminist approach unique is that throughout history, there have been many ideologies of social justice preaching equality, but they all stopped outside the door of the household or family and were content with achieving equality at that level. But feminism opened the door and analyzed how power is practiced in our most intimate spaces and relationships. It identified and interrogated all these hidden, invisible, and normalized power differences, discriminations, biases, and violence. So feminism is unique because it questioned power structures within our institutions, within our organizations, our relationships, and within ourselves, how we use our power. Most importantly, feminism was the first ideology to recognize our bodies and our sexuality as sites of power discrimination, control, and violence. So why is this approach to leadership therefore different? Because feminism believes that leadership is about leading for a larger purpose. It's about dismantling patriarchy, and all the other complex power structures through which it operates. So it's not about being the boss and exercising power and authority. It also means that feminist values and politics have to be reflected in all the spaces we occupy. And the think piece offers you some of the core values and principles that are critical to feminism. It's about bringing those values into all the roles we play, all the institutions we build, and that the power structure embedded within these has to get transformed alongside the process of our internal change. So to do this, we have to tackle the four Ps, which are what I call the feminist leadership diamond. So to practice feminist leadership in an authentic way, 
we have to balance the four P's of power, principles, politics, the purpose, and our practices. And it's only when we achieve a balance between these four that leadership becomes transformative. So leadership becomes transformative when the practice of power, the practice of power is mediated by and filtered through our principles and our purpose. What gets in the way? This sounds quite simple. It sounds pretty straightforward. Why can't we get it right? What are the challenges to the practice of feminist leadership? Here are some of the core challenges. First of all, we're working in institutions where so many biases have been normalized in the overt structure. Now, you know many of these. Sexism, you know, lower pay for women, even doing the same work, or women not getting access to certain roles in the organization, neocolonialism, racism, ageism, casteism, homophobia, a number of these biases. Then we have what we call the deep structure of our organizations. We'll see what those are about. Then we have the self. So in a sense, the self can almost become a barrier because our own, no matter what ideology we've embraced, our own histories, our experiences with power in our childhood or our early life, our social conditioning, the kind of privileges or power that we have internalized as you know, naturally owing to me, and internalized sense of victimhood, which is also what we call power under, which is the unhealed trauma that pushes us to use power in negative ways. So the role of the self is one of the biggest challenges in achieving a transformative practice of leadership because surrounding our practice of the four Ps is all this personal baggage, history, psychic baggage, our emotional health and ill health, our strengths and weaknesses, they all shape our practices. And these are some of the ways, some of the factors that are playing into how we conduct ourselves in a leadership role, even though our beliefs may be absolutely up there in the clouds. Now, what is power under? Because this is a big piece of the self that we often carry and it's invisible even to us. Like Even we don't recognize that we've internalized these kinds of feelings. Power under is the term created by a psychoanalyst, Stephen Weinman, for when people who've suffered trauma or, I added to it, systemic oppression because of their caste, their gender, their sexual expression, whatever, when people who have suffered this kind of trauma or systemic oppression become oppressive to others when they gain some kind of power. In organizations, power under is usually manifested as, if I'm not on top, manipulation, subtle sabotage, gossip and backbiting to pull down somebody else, and other behaviors which are a kind of victim power at work. And the basic premise of our under is, if I don't show who's the boss, I'll end up becoming the victim because there are only these two roles in the world, oppressor or victim. What are organizational deep structures? Well, these are the hidden and very subtle ways in which people often unconsciously 
reproduce or reenact social biases, hierarchies, non-transparent practices within organizational spaces, even if the organization's values are quite opposed to these. So on the surface, the organization looks perfect. It has this beautiful mission, value statement, great strategies, great policies, all the rest of it. But underneath, there is this bed of snakes because each of us is bringing into the organization all sorts of hidden baggage. And these are some of the common deep structure dynamics where the informal norms differ from the formal rules. So those who work late, those who work on weekends are more highly valued or more highly rewarded. There are all sorts of biases or sense of privilege that are reproduced in the organization. Like, why should I have to wash up? Or why should I clean a toilet? Or why should I do this work, which I consider sort of secretarial? There's a lot of personal baggage and power under practices, as we saw. And some individuals or groups have greater power and influence in a very hidden, informal way. Maybe it's the founding group or something like that. Certain kinds of behavior is rewarded and others is penalized. So to transform organizations, it's very useful to use the gender at work framework to look at how, what kinds of transformation we need to create in which quadrant. And the framework goes from the individual to the systemic or organizational level on the x-axis and from the informal to the formal on the y-axis. And each quarter, these are the things that we have to work on changing. On the formal side, resources, voice, control, access of individuals. On the systemic side, all the stuff around hierarchy, rules, roles, policies, etc. On the informal side, much tougher, internalized privilege, biases, unhealed trauma, and of course, all the deep structure stuff that's going on. Now, what is important to remember, there is no perfect feminist organization. And there is no one recipe or roadmap for every organization. There are many factors that are going to constrain our efforts, resources, legal and regulatory frameworks of the countries we work in, the demands of the work leave us with little time to address a lot of these issues. So our goal should be to try to become the next best version of ourselves, rather than sitting content and complacent that, oh, we can't change these things, you know, they're a normal part. We have to keep trying to become the next best version. So it's a challenging journey, but very well worth the struggle. Thanks so much, Rilata. Listening to many of the points you made, it's clear that transformational feminist leadership is in many ways deeply personal and very much an ongoing process that draws on different dimensions of our lives, both personal as well as professional. But how do we make sense of these sort of conceptual ideas in our own practice and how does it play out in reality? And to help us understand some of these practical implications of implementing feminist principles and values in our organizations, we actually have an exciting group of panelists joining us today to share their experiences and lessons. Starting us off is Rudo Chigudu, a Zimbabwean feminist activist, artist, and current board member of Zimbabwe's Women's Resource Center and Network. And through her reflections, Rudo will share some insights on the importance of self-awareness and how this influences the way we work and engage with others 
from a feminist perspective. So Rudo, over to you. Thank you, Joanna. So I think I come to my experience in a sort of roundabout way. It feels almost as though the formal institutional movement-based stuff led me to the self-informal space. I think my experience comes from what was pain and trauma in feminist space that I think in our organizing, in our thinking, are the spaces of safety, right? So we are in, in feminist spaces because these are the spaces that transform lives, that support us, that hold us, that anchor us. They are the starting points for what we want to see in the world. And then being part of a collective that was truly trying to do this in the world, we came together as a group of young feminists, driven, passionate, inspired. We thought we could change the world. But in the process, who we were as individuals came up in really strong and distinct ways. So I won't dwell on the story. It could take us all day. But I think the lesson was that at a time when we were thinking at our sharpest, most creative, most energetic, the pain that we carried, whether it was from childhood or past experience, those traumas, those ways of seeing ourselves, the ways in which we had been told we had value or had been devalued in our lives really started to surface. So very personal insecurities began to surface. And it was almost as though we were flowing at each other, right? So you're in a space, you're part of the same collective, but when the collective is talked about whose name gets mentioned, whose name gets mentioned first, who's getting credit for the work that the movement, the collective is doing. And so in these ways where donors, other organizations, other folks who were really excited about the work that was happening were trying to magnify, amplify what it is we were doing, they were also magnifying the tensions amongst us and almost dividing. So it was just in those moments where we started to feel like, why is it your name that comes up and not mine? What do you say when the others are not present? Who has access and safety? We're part of a collective movement. But if things go wrong and we are attacked or under attack in Zimbabwe, a very repressive context, especially around issues of LGBTI and abortion, if things really go wrong, your name is known and you can be carried away by amnesty or frontline, what happens to the rest of us in the movement. They seemed small, <laughs> subtle, but were massive, massive fractures in the movement. I needed to stop and reflect. We started off so close. We were friends, sisters, comrades, as we did this work. How did we get to this place? And so for me, it was having to pause and say, in the moments when I was challenged, what was triggered in me? When my idea was not the best idea, <laughs> why was that hard for me to accept? And similarly, looking at my sisters, my colleagues saying, asking the same questions. So rather than say they were horrible, they were bad, they were, or I was horrible, I was bad. It was really saying, what are the underlying factors? Where is the pain? Where was the eight-year-old me who wasn't picked first? <laughs> when were they surfacing in those moments? And so 
I just decided it was important, essential, if I was going to do the work that I thought mattered to spend the time facing myself, facing Rudo, <laughs> because Rudo was going to go back into the world, even if I was not going back into that organization, that collective, I was going to go back into the world and I needed to heal me. I needed to understand me. I needed to hold me, hug me, love me. <laughs> and I needed to challenge myself. And a lot of that came from building systems of accountability around myself, where I said, I cannot trust myself. So how do I build community with people around me that I trust to love me and hold me and check me? And that's really what I needed. People whose love I could trust, but whose honesty, brutal honesty, when it was needed, I could trust. And so for me, that was the system of holding myself. And I think the most challenging thing was that really having to face myself and having people say to me, you can withdraw, but you take Rudo with you wherever it is that you go. So it doesn't matter what the space is, you carry yourself, whatever space you end up in. Similarly, for me, that has been the engineering force whenever I think about the people around me, organizations, movements, states, whoever it is that feels like they're against what it is we're trying to do. And I say they are carrying the same pain, the same trauma, the same insecurities, privilege, whatever it is, they're carrying it in them. And if we really want them to transform or if we really hope for that kind of transformation, how do we get to the individual being? So for me, I call self-awareness my obsession. <laughs> and that is my anchor. Really just taking the time on the daily to intentionally say, what was that feeling that arose in that moment? Even if I didn't verbalize it, even if I didn't react negatively or badly, if there's a feeling that arises in me, can I take my attention to that feeling and ask myself, what is the driving force of that? And so I think when I think about who we want to be in the world, I keep thinking the more self-aware we can be, then the better our chances <laughs> of truly transforming self and becoming what it is that we say we want to see in the world. Thank you so much, Rudo. You've really provided a brilliant example of how we can enter spaces with shared visions and with the best intentions to bring about change. But if we're not engaging and really transforming ourselves in this process, we're in such danger of perpetuating the very social norms, work cultures and power structures we're seeking to change. So huge thanks once again for sharing. Next up, we'll hear from Bettina Baldeschi, who's the CEO of the International Women's Development Agency in Australia. And Bettina will talk through an example from her lived experience of working towards implementing transformational feminist leadership. So Bettina, over to you. Thank you. So I'll take a storytelling approach. And actually, I want to try and travel through the four quadrants, starting with the informal and the individual. So starting actually with me. And so it's a story of organizational change, which is ongoing. So context, we are a feminist organization of about 55 plus women. And back about two years ago, some, you know, I'm making myself completely vulnerable in sharing this. About two years ago, some allegations of racism were made against the organization on Instagram by what looked like uh, previous staff from IWDA. And actually, staff from IWDA came forward at that time and also expressed that they had experienced racism in the organization. 
So my journey as a CEO in this moment is uncomplete, uh, I guess, privilege and biases. I went to what does a CEO response looks like? And it looks like in my head, mitigating risk, understanding evidence. So a very cognitive sort of response. And you can see that response is not landing. It's not working where we are completely missing each other. I have this moment that really recollect vividly a moment of being into a workshop, which was a First Nation workshop. And a First Nation person says, white people need to stop thinking with their head and they need to start listening with their heart. That was my first light bulb moment because in that moment, I really had a real sense of, oh my goodness, I have not actually stopped and listened to what is happening through my heart. I have given and I am giving and engaging with this through a sort of head response with all of my privileges, all of my biases. The second light bulb moment for me was around understanding that as an organization that's focused on gender equality, a feminist organization, we have gender equality fluency. If someone had come towards us to say they had experienced sexual harassment in the organization, we had a, would have taken a very different approach, which would have been one of first believing. So why is it different in this instance? And so from there, I moved to the other quadrant, which is the quadrant of still the informal, but the systemic, which is how does that conversation then unfold in an organization where you have women of color and white women and all of those assumptions and biases are suddenly coming together and people are looking for a response and are looking for an apology. And again, you can see in that moment that invisible power, everything to do with deep structure plays out and tend to push us as a Global North organization, which has predominantly white women in the organization, down the path of an apology is about risk mitigation. It's about acknowledging wrongdoing, but as almost like a closure moment. Whereas in fact, actually, again, taking an approach of deep listening, of really actually opening discomfort, creating the space where we can sit with the discomfort of hearing, the apology becomes a first step. It becomes the start of healing. And so we're starting on a very different frame, a very different sort of conversations, which leads to you know, those questions of power that Shalette I touched on, who's setting the frame, who's asking the question, who's holding the space, who's holding the pen. We actually work through this apology in a way that actually it took a long time to get to an apology, which was actually participatory in terms of having the voices across the organization in that document that actually became a statement of intention for the organization. And so from that, you move to the next quadrant around the systemic and the formal, and that looks like transformation at governance levels, or now half of the board is now made of women of color with lived experience from the region where we work. We have a co-chair model with one of the co-chair being a woman of color with lived experience from the region, changes into our leadership team. And we've asked for practical example of what feminist leadership and tangible change looks like is doing a scan across our contracts in the organization and really realizing that we have unintentionally, but that's not good enough, unintentionally reproduced systemic racism because most of the white women are on permanent contract and most of the women are on short-term contract. So 
changing this kind of deep organizational structures, which are about policies and rules, do not come about, I think, unless there is that individual self-reflective awareness moment that can be transpiring into a collective self-awareness moment, which then we can actually try to bed into systems and structure and to finish the circle and come to the last quadrant around the individual and the formal. For me, as a CEO of the organization, that means what does then structured learning and unlearning looks like? So it looks like, for example, setting up a formal structure for myself of coaching and mentoring by women of color with lived experience who bring very different perspectives and therefore through that process are questioning my biases, are questioning my privilege, are questioning the way I come to know, think, feel the world. Thank you so much, Bettina. I think your example is a great one of showing how, as we think about transformational feminist leadership, it's not about focusing on one quadrant, but perhaps working across all four and sometimes in tandem. And there is no sequential order really to that change, but contextualizing and adapting our approach and being mindful with regards to how we are implementing it across the four quadrants that Srilata mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. So next we hear from Lucy Kombe, a young feminist who's joining us from Kenya. Lucy is a women's rights advocate and also the program assistant at Zamara Foundation in Kenya. And Lucy will talk us through her experience and really the importance of intentionally integrating transformational feminist principles from the more formal organizational space or perspective. So Lucy, over to you. Thank you very much, Johanna. Just to paint a picture of what the context is from where we're coming from, because we believe that the systems around us also impact how the leadership within the organizations or within the institution is also responsive to this. So within the society we live in is very Christian-based as well as a strong opposition and anti-gender movement that really gives us a more and more oppressive and limitation, especially when it comes to even organizational leadership. We believe that as Zamara Foundation, as much as we are a small organization, we believe that we are a space where we can dare to dream, where we feel seen, heard, loved, and cared for, where it's a place where we live enriched, but also a place we enrich, a space of mutual respect, and one that acknowledges what one comes with, that also speaks about the inherent power. It's also a place that gathers us all and builds the solidarity, a place that reminds us of our power, our strength, especially when it comes to the unified voice and togetherness in the efforts that we tend to put out there to dismantle these patriarchal systems and structures. We are also a space where those who are at the margins are centered. And that's where we talk about the inclusive inclusivity in our languages, in our structures, to be intentional and deliberate to in the language itself, to include things like pronouns in surveys and gender sensitive tools. We also are a place where we become and unbecome and where we can be ourselves and our authentic selves. So those are our manifestos that we could develop with some of these 
constituents of young women, gender expansive people. And we are very deliberate in ensuring that all through our work, we are meaningfully engaging this constituent to ensure that these approaches, these structures, these policies within the system are responsive to the needs of these constituents. And with this, we as Zamara Foundation, we acknowledge that through this work that we do and through the systems that we build within our structures, it really speaks to what now that we acknowledge that there's already an existing effort towards now responding to these oppressions and to these limitations. And with this, we acknowledge that the girl, the adolescent or the constituents that we tend to target or the constituents that we work with, even with the staff members at the organization, is to really acknowledge that and recognize that there is an inherent power within them, within themselves to actually make or even contribute towards the efforts of challenging these oppressive structures and systems, even outside our organizational level. And with this, I think we have been very intentional as an organization that is very, very young in terms of even drafting our policies, our structures, and very intentionally even in our leadership to engrave these feminist principles and values in each and every intervention, in each and every role, and even within the institution, structuring and policies. Thank you, Lucy. So we've heard examples from exceptional women who've provided us with very practical examples of how they've intentionally led using feminist principles and values. And I think these conversations are increasingly important to have, especially given the global backlash against gender equality. However, I think it also raises an important question about feminist leadership that moves beyond gender. And as pointed out in Trilata's think piece, Transformational feminist leadership is really about self-transformation and living by the principles and values we're all aspiring to see in the world more broadly. And although parity is an important step in this process, it's by no means the end goal. And so it's important to talk about, you know, what is the role of men in this transformative leadership style? How do we build and embed what we think about and consider to be transformational feminist leadership that moves beyond the gender, the sex binary, to be more inclusive. And to pick up on some of these points, next we'll hear from our final two panelists. So Gegan Seti, the founder of Jan Vikas and board member of Oxfam India. And we'll hear next from Gita Misra, the executive director of CREA. So over to you, Gegan. As a man, if I don't see the need to humanize myself, to become human, and how women can actually help me become a human being and I seek that help. I think the relationship always remains a power relationship. You know, for me, the life experience really has been, uh, and if I just use the nonviolent communication aspect, all men have to see the jackal sitting in them and make really be conscious of that jackal, which comes out as part of one's upbringing right from childhood. But I think to constantly focus that role hierarchies will always be there in organizations. Why are we always converting role hierarchies into relationship hierarchies? And I think that to me, if we really believe in the value of equality, then it's seen in my behavior. I can talk of values, but unless my behavior 
is demonstrating my values, it's big talk. So I think that level of coherence of my lived values and my proposed values, I think that contradiction is something I'm always living with and trying to resolve and never reaching there. Yeah, that's how I would put it. What more could I close with? But let me try three points. Uh, one being who and what needs to transform. And everyone has talked about ourselves, uh, questioning our own biases, privileges, how we practice power in our organizations. But I want to add one more thing. I think we need to become people and feminists that can learn and unlearn every day and agree that we don't know everything. And every day we are taught by our colleagues, our communities. I have learned about ableism from people with disabilities, sex workers work. I've learned from trans people, uh, their struggles. So that would be one. So I think what we need to transform is our thinking, because if we change the way we think, we will change the way we act. My second point is why does this transformation need urgent attention now? I think we, it needs urgent attention because we see this huge global tide of anti-gender, anti-democracy forces. And we need feminist leaders at the helm who understand these interlinkages. They understand how economic inequality, attacks on democracy, bodily autonomy, uh, climate catastrophe are connected and they're able to imagine and think. So we have to counter these very old ways of thinking about feminism and transformation and feminist leadership where the family gets naturalized, who is a woman gets naturalized. So my second point would be that. And my last point would be, what's the biggest transformation we can hope for? And I think that what we can hope for is a much greater solidarity that can be driven by feminist leadership, but also feminist mentoring. Feminist leaders and movements need to understand how movements are stronger together. Very often we see movements that are identity-based. We can't have a rhetoric of my suffering is worse than your suffering and that some people need more rights, resources and attention. We need a bigger feminist tent under which anyone can be included, trans people, lesbian, sex workers. And we can't undermine the struggle of any group to advance the rights of their own in the short term. And that is why we need feminists to commit to leadership in different ways of organizations, of movements, but also to commit to principles and ideas of rights for all, violence against all people to be prevented. And we really need to think of the constituencies ourselves as change agents, but also changing ourselves at the same time. Thank you so much for joining us in this episode on the power of feminist leadership. Listen out for our next episode, where we're going to pick up on some of these concluding points by diving into deeper conversations on feminist leadership that moves beyond the sex and gender binary, hearing both from men, but also LGBTQI plus leaders in terms of what feminist leadership looks like and means to them. If you haven't already, please do visit the Gender and Health Hub website where you can find Trilata's think piece on transformative feminist leadership. 
The website is www.genderhealthhub.org or you can visit the UNUIIGH website, which is www.iigh.unu.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at UNU underscore IIGH, or the Gender and Health Hub Twitter handle, which is at Gender Health Hub. And please also send us your feedback and suggestions via email at IIGH-info at UNU.edu. Thank you so much again for listening. Take care. This is a podcast recording by the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. The views expressed are those of the speakers only. <laughs>